using overheads this morning to teach a, uh, on a particular subject. There's some people saying, how come we don't have sermon notes? And usually we give you sermon notes, but there's too many notes this morning to fit on one piece of paper, so I've decided to uh, use the overhead projector. You know, it seems that every generation is fascinated by the phenomenon of tongue speaking. And not only uh, is every generation fascinated by this, this thing called tongue speaking, we wonder if we can do it today. I remember back in the early 80s, I was at OC, and uh, there were small prayer groups going on campus, as you know, usually do. And uh, lo and behold, there was one group that had been meeting for a couple of months, and they, they thought they could speak in tongues all of a sudden. And that was... Uh, kind of upsetting to the administration and <laughs> required some serious Bible study on that score. I tell you that story only because every generation, it's nothing new under the sun, you know, as Solomon said, every generation is fascinated by this thing. And there are a lot of religious groups today that claim this ability in 1997. Even in the Church of Christ, we have people wondering if it's possible to speak in tongues today, 1997. You know, the idea of modern tongue speaking only began in the 20th century. Did you know that? You you study church history from the 1st century to 19th century, you will not find any, any mention of any church speaking, claiming to be able to speak in tongues after the 1st century. None. Zero. Zip. Doesn't appear. Only in the 20th century have we revived this thing called speaking in tongues. And so since there is a great interest in this, and uh, it's uh, uh, obviously a biblical doctrine, I thought maybe it would be good to teach on this particular subject. And I'm going to teach on it this morning, and I'll teach on it this evening as well. This morning we're going to start with the history of the tongue-speaking movement the Pentecostal movement. And this evening, I will concentrate my lesson on what does the Bible actually teach concerning speaking in tongues so we can discern, we can know what the Bible says. Well, this is where the overheads come in. Help us to kind of keep track here. Well, we have to go all the way back to John Calvin, 16th century, believe it or not. Because the seeds were sown way back then for what is happening today in the 20th century. Seed idea came from Calvin. He believed, he didn't teach anything about speaking in tongues, by the way. But the idea that permits people to think that they can today started with him. Calvin believed, and of course John Calvin, you know, Presbyterian churches uh, were an outgrowth of his teaching. He believed that since man was a sinner and it was impossible for man to obey the gospel without the direct intervention of the Holy Spirit, meaning you couldn't even understand the gospel unless the Holy Spirit empowered you to do so. It was impossible for you to obey the gospel unless God intervened in a very special way to allow you to do it. That's what John Calvin taught. The ability to believe was the grace of God. Now the people in whom the Holy Spirit worked, according remember now I'm teaching what Calvin said, I don't agree with this, but this is what he said. The people in whom the Holy Spirit worked were called the elect. 
because God chose them. And his choosing of them was called predestination. In other words, God in the beginning of time chose certain people who would be saved and certain people who would be lost. And once that choice was made, it was irrevocable. No going back. Now, several religious ideas come from Calvin's original doctrine. For example, you know, accepting Jesus as your personal Savior. You ever hear that? People say, you know, on the radio or TV, they say, accept Jesus as your personal Savior and you'll be saved. Well, the seed idea for that comes from Calvin. After all, if God chose you in advance, all you have to do is accept his choice of you. See what I'm saying? All you have to do is accept his choice. You accept Jesus. You accept the idea that God has already chosen you. That's where that, that, that saying comes from. You're going to look through the whole Bible. You'll never find accept Jesus as your personal savior anywhere in the Bible. That's a man-made invention, that term, accept Jesus as your personal savior. And that term comes all the way from Calvin back in the 16th century. If God chooses you, all you have to do is accept his choice. Another thing uh, that uh, comes out of um, Calvin's ideas is baptism is only a symbol. In other words, if God chooses you in advance, you are saved from birth because of God's choice. And baptism is merely a symbol publicly demonstrating your salvation. That's all it is. See where it comes from? You don't need to be baptized. It's not essential for salvation because God's already chosen you. But since the Bible says you've got to be baptized, well, you're baptized to show, to demonstrate what has already taken place. Well, all that comes from Calvin. A third idea that comes from Calvin. Once saved, always saved. If your salvation depends on God's choice, you can't be lost. I mean, he chose you from the beginning, so you can't. there's nothing you can do to be lost. And if you fall away or if you become unfaithful, well, that's just a sign that you were never chosen to begin with. You're just a fake convert. Now, another person that had a lot of... Don't forget, we didn't speak in tongues here. You, you, this is one of these lessons where you're going to have to hold all these ideas and kind of keep them in one hand here, and I'll string them all together at the end. So you've got to work with me on this. Next person to come along is a man called John Wesley. And you're probably more familiar with the Methodist Church. The Methodist Church, John Wesley was not necessarily the founder, but his ideas grew and, and the Methodist church was formed around these ideas in the 18th century. Now, John Wesley introduced the concept of emotionalism in religion. He placed a great emphasis on a conscious religious experience. And when he preached, it was said that a lot of people moaned and groaned and cried out and got excited Okay. He believed that this was the work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, when he was preaching and people were going, oh, and, you know, rolling around on the floor and moving their hands around, he taught that this was the Holy Spirit working inside their lives. And so the work of the Holy Spirit was seen by 
this emotionalism. Now, what Wesley did is he tied the idea of the selection of God, of the elect, to an objective emotional reaction. In other words, see, with Calvin, God chose you, all right, from the beginning of time. But how did you know he chose you, you know? How did you know? Well, Wesley said, you knew because you had this feeling, this emotion, this excitement. That's how you knew. And so that's how the idea of emotionalism began to be incorporated in the Christian religion. The next fellow you need to look at is a less well-known, and his name was Charles P. Parham. He lived in the 19th, late 19th, early 20th century. In 1899, a group of ministers and laymen gathered to fast and pray, prayer group, and they claimed that they received, and here's where the confusion comes in, that's why you've got to follow me here. These people claimed that they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay? What they meant was the baptism with the Holy Spirit. But they gave it a wrong name. Okay? They gave a wrong thing a wrong name. It got real confusing. That's why I'm I'm using overheads here. And they claimed, they started speaking in gibberish and so on and so forth, and they claimed that this was the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they claimed that they could now speak in tongues. Well, in 1905, Parham established the Houston Bible School, and he began teaching and training people concerning tongue speaking, this thing he called baptism of the Holy Spirit, which really was supposed to be baptism with the Holy Spirit, which they didn't really have anyways, but they they called it the wrong name. got real confusing. In 1906, one of the graduates, a man called Jay Seymour, began meetings in Los Angeles, which lasted for three years. And during these meetings, a lot of other preachers from all, you know, uh, Baptists and Methodists and so on and so forth, they were trained in this doctrine of speaking in tongues. This baptism of the Holy Spirit, which was manifested in speaking in tongues. Even today, Pentecostal ministers are trained to do this. These people who were graduates of the Houston Bible School and and who had attended these training meetings went everywhere establishing Pentecostal churches, what we call Pentecostal churches. And during those times, mainly in the south, in the poor regions, and mainly in black churches. Assemblies of God, churches of God, United Pentecostal churches, Nazarene, holiness, all of these groups started at this time. A key event took place in 1950 and 1960, during the two decades. A surge of interest began among mainline, until 1950, this was mostly rural, poor South phenomenon. But in the 50s and 60s, a thing called the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship was begun by a man that we know, his name was Oral Roberts. 
He came out of this original movement in the South, but he did something very, very special. He spread the movement on television. He added the tent, the old tent revival atmosphere. He added to this faith healing. He mixed the package together and he had the greatest single impact in American religion in the first uh, half of the 20th century. Then in the 60s, the Catholics got on the bandwagon and they called this phenomenon the charismatic movement from the Greek word charis, which means gift, and legitimized this idea even among the Catholic Church. Today, uh, aside from those churches which call themselves Pentecostal, the teaching concerning the baptism of the Holy Spirit expressed as speaking in tongues is found in almost every, every Protestant denomination. Uh, let me give you a... Uh, let me give you now a summary of a doctrine. A doctrine does not appear overnight. A false doctrine, an incorrect doctrine. It is the result of several teachings that over time tend to melt together and create a new idea. Okay? So let me summarize for you the four steps that it took to get us to, not us, but to get the religious world to the point where they believe that speaking in tongues is possible today. The first step, of course, began in the, in the Middle Ages or, or you know, with, uh, uh, with Calvin and, and Wesley. The idea that God selects from the beginning those who are going to be saved and those who are going to be lost. That's, that's the key idea that starts. And then add the idea that he makes his selection through the Holy Spirit. And then to these two ideas, add the idea that the choice of the Holy Spirit is confirmed because the elected person can now speak in tongues. And actually, somewhere around the 18th, 19th century, that's where the Baptists and the Pentecostals kind of split. Okay? Uh, evangelical, if you wish, and Pentecostal split. The evangelicals said, well, the way you know you have the Holy Spirit is that you do good acts and so on and so forth. And the Pentecostals said, no, the way you know you have the Holy Spirit is because you can start speaking in tongues. And then the signs that accompany this baptism of the Holy Spirit are either tongue speaking or purity of life or a tremendous amount of love. Now, <clears throat> This doctrine here, the baptism of the Holy Spirit expressed as speaking in tongues, is the reason why, is the reason why that in the evangelical and Pentecostal world, if you wish, they will not baptize people who have not spoken in tongues or who have not given up all worldly habits or who have not made a drastic change in their life. You ever notice that? In evangelical churches, many times, they wait for someone to be baptized. They, you know, it's a kind of a wait and see. Some people even have a committee. In churches, there's a committee. You want to be baptized, there's a committee. They want to examine your life. Do you give up smoking, stop drinking, stop doing this and that, blah, blah, blah. You know, they want to examine your life. They want to make sure that you show the signs of a person who has been chosen. Because 
Baptism is just a symbol that God has chosen you. So they wait. See, that's why that happens. Another thing that has taken place because of this doctrine, these groups say that baptism is just a symbol. It's just the proof that you are saved. It confirms your election. It is not an obedience of faith. That's where we differ. That's where we differ. You know, uh, Campbell and Stone and the forefathers of the restoration movement out of which the churches of Christ come, they said to this teaching here, because they rebelled against this teaching. Oh, I wish we knew our history. They rebelled against this teaching in no uncertain terms. And they paid a heavy price for rebelling against this teaching. This teaching swept Europe and the United States. 16th, 17th, 18th century. And these men, Stone and Campbell and all the others, restoration fathers, they call them, they were preachers. They were men who really knew the Bible and they stood up and said, no, that's wrong. Salvation's for everybody. Anybody can come to God through obedience of faith and be saved. God doesn't choose some to be lost and some to be saved. He invites everyone to come and be saved. All those who believe and repent and are baptized, they can be saved. That was their message. And boy, did that strike a chord. That's why the churches of Christ became such a fast-growing religious body in the United States. Because of the message. The message appealed to people. Everyone could come to Christ. There was no choosing. And then because of this doctrine... This is why most Pentecostal churches and charismatic churches, the whole focus of teaching and worship and fellowship and security in Christ is all based on speaking in tongues. It's all about speaking in tongues. It's all about getting you to speak in tongues and keep speaking in tongues and figuring out who can speak in tongues because that's the sign that you're actually saved. That's why they focus on this stuff. All right, now... How about a little modern-day research? I know it's a little small for you folks sitting in the back. Sorry about that. There's some empty pews in the front if you'd like to see that. Social scientists have been interested in the last 50, 60 years in this phenomenon. Not preachers, scientists, social scientists. And uh, they have studied these people who claimed to be able to speak in tongues. One person, Dr. J.P. Kildall, in his book, The Psychology of Speaking in Tongues, noted the following observations after listening and recording tongue speakers for 10 years. He followed them around for 10 years. He visited all types of churches where people spoke in tongues and claimed to have this miracle. And these are his observations after an exhaustive 10-year study. First of all, he said... Not all of them speak in tongues. In other words, not everybody in the church can speak in tongues. Some people just don't get it. Secondly, there is a dominant leadership that is required. In other words, tongue speaking is dependent and submissive to a strong authority who introduces the individual to speaking in tongues. Somebody somebody provides the pattern. The lead. Thirdly, there is an ease of uh, hypnotizability. All persons interviewed demonstrated this trait of character, he found. A person who easily 
follows suggested commands. Fourthly, he found recent crisis. 85% of the people experienced anxiety crisis just before beginning to speak in tongues. Well, of course, for a lot of these people, the need or the desire to speak in tongues was the crisis itself. You're sitting there with 300 people, everybody's speaking in tongues, and they figure they're all saved because they're speaking in tongues, and you're not speaking in tongues. Sure, you're going to have an anxiety crisis. Fourthly, instability. Or fifth, instability. For most people, speaking in tongues brought them happiness and a feeling of stability. The center of their lives was the ability to speak in tongues. Number six, low self-esteem. A lot of them indicated feelings of low self-esteem and unworthiness before being able to speak in tongues. Number seven, intolerance. Those who could were intolerant of those who couldn't. It was a status thing. Number eight, obsessiveness. Those who spoke in tongues were preoccupied with this particular thing. It became the center of their religious experience. They wanted others to share this thing. Well, the conclusions that he came to, uh, just let, before I get that, let me say one other thing. He also talked about methods to, that were used to get people to speak in tongues. And he said, this is the usual scene that most people describe when they began speaking in tongues, according to his research over 10 years. First of all, there would be a meeting devoted to intense concentration and tongue speaking. That's what it was about. Then, an atmosphere of great suggestibility was present by a strong leader. And thirdly, the initiate is led to copy the sounds that he has heard others to make. In other words... His conclusion is the ability to speak in tongues, same methodology as hypnosis, group pressure and suggestion. And secondly, it is a learned phenomenon. They learn how to do it. They're taught how to do it using this type of method. Now again, this isn't Bible here. This is just a researcher who studied people who claim to have this gift. Let's talk about the dangers here for a second. You know, some people say, well, what's the problem here? What's the harm? Why, do, why can't we just live and let live? Why do we often meddle in other people's business? Well, we don't go meddling in other people's business until that business shows up in our church. See, that's the problem. I don't, want that, I don't mind if that business is out there. I just don't want that business being here. That's not our business. So we need to understand there are some dangers because of this phenomena, because of this thing, this false teaching, this false understanding. There are dangers. First of all, it causes one to reject Bible teaching. I mean, if you accept this, then you're rejecting other things that the Bible teaches. For example, let's go back. You know, when I was talking about baptism of the Holy Spirit, baptism with the Holy Spirit, that's a very important difference. Baptism with the Holy Spirit was for the apostles. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus says to the apostles that they will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The baptism with the Holy Spirit was the baptism that enabled the apostles to speak in tongues, to do miracles, to heal, to do all those things. That was the baptism with the Holy Spirit, and that was just for the apostles, no one else. 
The baptism of the Holy Spirit is water baptism. Let me give you a, a parallel here. The car of Michael. Whose car is it? Michael's car, right? The car of Michael. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Whose baptism is it? It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It belongs to the Holy Spirit. Well, what baptism is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, it's the baptism he commands. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, commands the people to be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When you go into the water here and confess Christ and you're immersed in that water and your sins are forgiven, you have just received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism that the Holy Spirit commands you to have, you do it. That's it. It also causes you to reject the Bible teaching that this gift would end. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 8 to 10, Paul says that tongues will cease. It causes you also to uh, uh, place the power of salvation in signs and wonders and not in the gospel. Paul says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Not tongues, not signs. People think tongues save them or the ability to speak in tongues, that's what saves them. Or that's the sign. That's not the sign. The sign is confession in Jesus Christ and baptism. That's the sign. And then it causes people to reject the proper response of salvation. Someone says to me, how do you know you're saved? And I'll say to them, well, the first week, of, I forget the exact day, but it was in the first week of November in 1977 in Lachine, Quebec, on a very dark and cold night, in front of two other brothers, I confessed that Jesus was Christ I repented of my sins. They, they baptized me in very... You think the water's cold here when the heater's not working? You don't know cold. You don't know cold. And they baptized me in that very cold water on a cold November night, 1977. That's the proper response to the God. I always remember that night because that's the night I was saved. And so it causes one to reject Bible teaching. It also causes one to claim false gifts. I mean, that's a whole other lesson, but you know, we don't heal today. We don't speak tongues today. Those were gifts that were given to the apostles in order to help them establish the church and preach the gospel in the first century. And since then, they've given us God's word with all the information that we need to make the witness and to bring people to God. We don't need any more. We don't need to claim false gifts. Thirdly, it causes one to focus on the wrong gifts. People are always focusing on healings and tongues, which they cannot have legitimately, instead of focusing on the real gifts that the Holy Spirit gives today, the gift of preaching, the gift of teaching, the gift of serving, the gift of giving, the gift of leading. Those are the gifts we need to pursue. Fourthly, it causes one to focus on the wrong things. The wrong things. We don't need to be focused on tongue speaking. We need to be focused on soul saving. That's the difference right there. Soul saving is what it's about, not tongue speaking. It causes one to search apart from God's word. 
It causes people to search in their feelings, subjective information, the inner voice, self-proclaimed prophets, rather than the mighty word of God, inspired, given once for all to the saints, able to save, able to teach, able to correct, able to reprove, able to comfort, able to guide. Right here. It causes people to search in the wrong places for the wrong answers. And finally, it can cause one to be lost. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 to 23, Jesus rejects those who claim prophecy and miracles. You know, they say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Did we not do miracles in your name? And what did he say? I mean, didn't they say prophecy, miracles? Didn't they claim they could do these things? And what did Jesus say to them? Go away from me, workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And why didn't he know them? Because they did not come to him according to his word. He only knows the ones who come to him according to his word. Brothers and sisters, there is always a current in the church that carries people away with this idea in every generation. I am now old enough to have seen it happen twice in my Christian lifetime. The good thing, one of the good things about getting older, you you see stuff come back. And you go, I remember that. I remember that. I remember this. Tonight we're going to see what the Bible says about tongues. We don't just don't have, you know, I was going to do this in one lesson, but it'd be just rushing on through. And so I have a couple of invitations for you this morning then as I close out this particular part of uh, my lesson. First invitation is this. I invite those who have not yet responded in the proper way to Jesus Christ. In other words, if you have not confessed Christ, if you have not repented of your sins, been immersed in the water uh, for the uh, remission of your sins, if you have not done that, then I invite you to come and do that this morning in order to save your soul and guarantee your eternal life with God in heaven. The second invitation is that I invite those who believe in modern tongue speaking to consider seriously what I have just said and base their decision solely on God's word concerning this issue. Every person I have ever studied with on this issue bases their contention for their tongue speaking on what somebody else says, never on the word, never. They can't ever prove it with the word. It's always with, well, well, I heard and I saw and I can't deny what this guy said and so on and so forth. Well, you know, the other good thing about getting older is you get, you get to make a lot of mistakes. I grew up Catholic. That's why some people, you know, that, please don't be offended if I talk about the Catholic Church, but I know about the Catholic Church. I mean, I grew up in it. I was an altar boy. I was in monastery with the monks, you know. I mean, I know Catholicism. I taught it in school as a school teacher. I taught catechism. So I know that religion. Just like I can make Italian jokes because I'm Italian. I don't joke about Roman Catholicism. That would be impolite and unkind. But I can talk about it with knowledge... I can also talk about this with knowledge because after I was Catholic, I was Pentecostal. And I thought I spoke in tongues and I thought I could cast out demons and I thought I could do all these things. That's why I'm not impressed when someone says, well, I saw it, I heard it. Good or something. Big deal. I can do that. You want to do that? Is that your proof? I can do that. I can do all that stuff. 
And some people say, well, why did you leave Pentecostalism? I just was reading this. I just kept reading it. I kept reading it over and over and over again. I kept reading it. I read John 20 times in a row. The book of John, one day, one, not one day, but you know, during a period of time, I was in Illinois with this group. Interestingly enough, they were called the Cleansing Church of Christ. No affiliation with us, cleansing, because they would cast out spirits and lay hands. And their idea, listen, their idea was, your problem with sin was that you had evil spirits inside of you. Spirit of jealousy, spirit of adultery, spirit of lust, spirit of lying, you know, and you get, you could cast hands and cast out that spirit and you'd feel better for a day, but it was like a Kleenex box. Every spirit you cast out, another one would pop up. So, you know, it kept the leaders in business. You always had to go back for more ministry. But they say, why did you leave? Because I kept reading the New Testament. And the more I read it, the more I said, well, they're not doing what's in here. I cannot reconcile what's going on. I can't find it in here. And I would have, well, show me. And they say, well, you know, you don't understand. And I said, oh, yeah, I understand perfectly. And when I left, they said, you know, you'll never make it without us. That's what they said to me. You'll never make it without us. And I said to the guy who told me that, that's what the priest told me when I left Catholicism. You'll never make it without us. And my search was over many, many years. It was years after that that I found the church. And I discovered that I'll never make it without this. This is what I'll never make it without. So I invite you, if you believe in tongue speaking and charisma and all that stuff, study. Come study with me or one of our elders or anyone. We have many great teachers. Come and study. Don't be afraid to put it on the table and be challenged with it that you might grow in knowledge and make your decision based solely on God's Word. And finally, I invite everyone here to return tonight for part two of this lesson. Like, you know, you go to the Super Bowl, would you not watch the second half of the game? The second half tonight. Be nice to have everyone back. If you need to respond to our invitation this morning in any way, even for prayers, if you're struggling with something, you need to be restored, whatever it is, Bob has selected a song we're going to sing now. As we stand and sing, please come.